Hello, microbe friends. I'm Dr. Justine Dees, and welcome to the Joyful Microbe Podcast. It's the show all about the microbes we encounter in our daily lives. Thank you so much for tuning in. I can't wait to share this show with you. Today, I'll be chatting with Dr. Vinitha Zechariah, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of California, Berkeley, studying a species of bacteria that lives in the soil called Streptomyces coelacolor. This particular bacterium makes an antibiotic with a beautiful blue pigment, and Vinitha uses it like watercolor paint to create art. In this episode, we talk about her work with this bacterium and how she got into what she calls actino art. All right, let's get to the interview. Vanitha, thank you so much for coming on the Joyful Microbe podcast. Thank you so much, Justine. I'm really excited to be here. So thanks for this opportunity. This is going to be really fun. So you are a postdoc at the University of California, Berkeley, and you have a PhD in molecular microbiology and work with this wonderful bacterium that lives in the soil called Streptomyces coelacolor and study what impacts its development. It also produces antibiotics, and the fun part about that is that the antibiotics have this beautiful blue color. And I love that you've actually taken this and created art with it. You paint with the um, blue antibiotic just like you would paint with watercolor paints. So I am so excited to have you on to talk about the soil bacteria um, and how you've used this one species to create art. Yeah, it's pretty pretty incredible, this organism. Yeah, <laughs> it's awesome. So... Um, Tell me a little bit about um, your what you're doing right now in your postdoc where you study this group of bacteria that lives in the soil. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I study um, Streptomyces um, coelacolor, as you mentioned before. And so this bacteria in particular um, is studied a lot um, and has been used a lot for like genetic studies. And for me, I'm really interested in uh, what you had touched upon on how these uh, bacteria are able to make different natural products. Um, And so uh, I am really interested in understanding the factors that influence how it's able to make these different compounds, but also have this amazing life cycle, um, this multicellular type of life cycle as well. And so uh, that's what I'm studying in the lab currently. That is really cool. So thinking about soil bacteria, like what what are they doing in the soil? Like what does life look like for them? <laughs> yeah, that's a really wonderful question as, you know, what are they doing hanging out there? And it really is quite remarkable because as I mentioned, you know, soil bacteria, they're really important just from an ecological perspective, too. Um, and as mentioned, they are producers of so many different um, chemical compounds um, that are important also medically and 
uh, industrially as well. And in nature, you know, they're important for uh, decomposing organic matter. And also there's a lot of crosstalk between organisms too. And so um, oftentimes these chemical compounds are really, um, you know, important for signaling as well. So there's a lot of uh, chemical communication, uh, if you'd like to think about it that way, at the soil level. And it's really amazing what these bacteria can do. It's crazy to think about that they actually seem to kind of have communities where they're talking to each other and they do their talking, of course, a little differently than we do. And they use these chemicals. So what are some examples of the conversations that they would have with these chemicals? Yeah. So a lot of times, you know, um, it's actually quite interesting because one of the questions in my research are what are some environmental cues that kind of influence this uh, communication or its ability to turn on signals. And so um, what we find, um, and so what uh, my PI, Matt Traxer has found in his postdoc is that iron is really important um, for the development of these bacteria. And so what I was able to find too is uh, really get to, you know, um, how iron is influencing um, its ability to uh, make these aerial hyphae. Um, and so I can talk about its life cycle um, as well, um, if you'd like me to dive into that. Yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit about that, because you mentioned that they're multicellular, which mm-hmm. is really crazy to think about, because when you learn in general microbiology, you learn that a big difference between bacteria and fungi is that bacteria are unicellular, fungi, right. you know, are more multicellular or can right. be, but you just don't think about bacteria being that way. Exactly. So, and then they have these different cell types, which you mm-hmm. mentioned the aerial hyphae. So right. yeah, if you don't mind going into that, that they have these different cell types and talk about what they do. Absolutely. And you totally, you know, hit the nail on the head because yeah, when you think about bacteria, you're not really thinking about, you're not thinking about it's like multicellularity. And so that's something I, even when I first started getting into this field, I was like, wow, streptomycetes are wild. What are they doing? Um, And just learning more about the history of it, you know, these were actually originally mistaken for fungi because of its kind of like fuzzy appearance. Um, But really to get into its life cycle, um, they start out as spores and when the conditions are favorable, um, the spores start to germinate or they start to grow and they grow as these like vegetative um, kind of filamentous um, mycelium, which is really, you know, uh, intriguing for bacteria as we talked about earlier. And they make these um, aerial structures called um, aerial hyphae and they're coated with these Uh, hydrophobic or kind of water resistant proteins um, that kind of allow it to break the air water um, surface and grows upward. And then those hyphae um, eventually kind of turn into spores. And so the spore chains um, are able to disperse into the environment. So you kind of have this like incredibly complex life cycle, uh, but it's really amazing to see these different stages of growth in streptomyces. Um, and then in particular, streptomyces silicolor has the ability to also produce this blue pigment actinorodin while it's growing and also another red pigment um, did antibiotic 
and also prodigiosin. And so those are pretty, you know, hefty terms, but I just like talking a bit about like blue pigment and red pigment. And uh, it's pretty amazing what these uh, bacteria can do. Yeah, that's really, it's very interesting. So the aerial hyphae, and if we think about this visually, it's they, and I'm sure it's not perfectly like this in real life, but you Mm -hmm. had a figure in a paper that I'm going to link to in the show notes where it showed they just kind of grow up Mm -hmm. away from whatever surface they're on. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those are like the aerial hyphae, the vegetative hyphae. Do they grow out kind of horizontally? Oh, yeah, that's a really good question. So they grow out like horizontally, but also if you're thinking about um, if they're growing on a plate or, you know, even in soil, they really just kind of grow like deep into the media as well. So they kind of spread out. And um, uh, I do have some pictures of a cross section of a colony, and you can really see how it spreads out like horizontally, but also really deep into the uh, media it's growing on as Mm. well. Mm, that's really interesting. I do vaguely remember that because um, I've grown streptomyces before when I was in grad school and I was teaching the freshman research initiative labs. And so we had freshmen come in and they would have their first research experience with us. Mm -hmm. And they, we went out and tried to isolate streptomyces species from the soil. But I do Mm -hmm. kind of remember that when they would grow on Petri dishes in the auger was like, they would almost dig into it. Exactly. (laughs) It's quite interesting. Um, Okay. So, if we're thinking about the aerial hyphae, then they're kind of growing up. And then mm-hmm. on the aerial hyphae, those are where the spores are. Is that right? Yeah. So to kind of get into it, the aerial hyphae, during growth, um, they're kind of laying down cross walls, but it's not really like regularly formed. But towards the end of its life cycle, the uh, bacteria gets the signal of, okay, now let's start to really commit to the stage of sporulation. So those aerial hyphae then lay down um, more regular cross walls, and then the septa or those cross walls really begin to form nicely so that you have uh, unigenomic spores. So it has all the, each spore has all the genetic information available um, and necessary for it to start the life cycle again. So what are the cross walls that you're mentioning? Yeah, so the cross walls are the the cell walls between um, one cell to another. So as I mentioned, it's a little tricky because bacteria, uh, usually when we think about are unicellular, but when they're growing um, as uh, these filaments, they're kind of just these long tubes. But then when you have these cross walls come down, they're really separating these long tubes so that um, each uh, spore can have one copy of the DNA. Well, that's interesting. Okay, so I want to go back to a word that you said to mycelium, yeah. which is yes. a word that if anybody knows what that word is, they usually associate with that with fungi as well. <laughs> right. So can you tell me a little bit about that and the difference between the way that that works for bacteria versus fungi? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I guess that's just kind of a, an umbrella term used uh, to describe its uh, way of growth, that kind of filamentous uh, mycelial growth. Um, and so, yeah, I think it just gets a little tricky because these uh, streptomyces grow very similar to fungi. So I think there's just a lot of um, you know, a- adopting terms normally uh, used for fungi for uh, this bacterium as well. So really the mycelia um, that we're talking about are those kind of filamentous um, um, cells that we're um, seeing in its development. So we talked about aerial hyphae and spores. And um, can you tell me a little bit more about what they're doing when they're as vegetative hyphae? Oh, yeah. So as vegetative hyphae, um, so that's really early in the life cycle. So that's when they're really growing, getting the nutrients, making the things that it needs. And um, during that time as well, as it starts to, um, you know, use up those nutrients, um, they eventually make the hyphae kind of get the signaling of, hey, guys, it's time to move out of here. Um, So uh, they get signals to sort of switch programs to make hyphae, but also make these natural products as well. And so uh, a lot of the times it's thought that these natural products can also help in communication as well. Mm, that's very interesting. And then there was a another type called explorer cells. Oh, yeah. So that's really uh, amazing research done from Marie Elliott's lab. And so um, that was, yeah, an amazing type of new uh, growth type uh, of streptomyces that was discovered by their lab. And it's really quite amazing how these explorer cells can really um, traverse uh, uh, across media and kind of find um, uh, new sources of nutrients. And that's really crazy to think about the because is it true that they, they're not really modal, like they can't move, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but like, does this change that thought now that maybe they can move in a way? <laughs> yeah, that's really um, a great question because yeah, these are typically non-modal organisms. You don't have like kind of those um, mechanisms for motility. Um, and so I think that's something uh, that the Elliott Lab um, is looking into in terms of like these explorer cells, how they really are um, uh, able to kind of traverse across these surfaces uh, without these classical motility pathways. So they make antibiotics. I think this is pretty incredible that about 70%, is that number still true? That about 70% of the antibiotics that we use on humans clinically are from streptomyces or actinomycetes? Yes. Yeah, I believe that's about right. About for about 60 to 70% are from actinos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's pretty amazing. Um, what other helpful chemicals do they um, produce? Yeah, so not just antibiotics, but there are also compounds that have um, antifungal properties, even anti-cancer properties. So I mentioned um, one of the compounds from Streptomyces color called endosyl prodigiosin, which is important for its own signaling and um, also kind of um, 
cell death processes, but also um, just in terms of its properties as having like immunosuppressive properties, anti-cancer properties. And so there's still, you know, a lot of research that, um, you know, needs to be done. Uh, but it is quite amazing how uh, these organisms are a source of compounds that have various functions. It's really weird to think that so many of their <clears throat> compounds are so helpful to us, but right. it's like, obviously they're not making them for us. So yeah. <laughs> right, what, right. what, why, I mean, do you have any thoughts on this of why they would make chemicals that have any impact on us? Right, right. And, but they, you know, what are they doing for themselves versus like, for example, the one that's anti-cancer, mm-hmm. what is that, ha- like, what are they doing with that in their communities? And then why do you think that happens to have any sort of use for us? Right. I think that's a very, um, you know, really important and valid question. And, you know, that's something that our lab, um, Matt Traxer's lab, it's really a question that we're interested in of like, you know, there is this, um generation of um, natural compounds from these organisms? What are they doing? And from just like an ecological perspective, these compounds are really important for kind of uh, maintaining uh, communication with other organisms. So as I said, um, it's not just communicating with other microbes, um, uh, sorry, with other bacteria, but there are other microbes that it interacts with. um, Also, you know, different um, fungi and also different um, insects, you know. Um, so there's mm-hmm. some uh, really talented uh, a p- former postdoc in our lab who is studying um, Streptomyces um, interaction with uh, these incredible beetles. And so, um, you know, there are so many interactions um, at the ecological scale um, of these organisms. And so uh, that's a really great question of what are these bacteria doing and there's a lot of protective properties of these compounds for insects as well for you know protecting um, insects against like certain fungi um, and harmful uh, microbes so um, that's probably at the you know smaller scale what they're doing and then for themselves um, it could be defense as well. Um, They're, you know, interacting with so many different microbes. So kind of competing for resources. um, And, you know, when it kind of gets, um, you know, uh, dicey, (laughs) they're able to produce these compounds that can kind of confer this like advantage to them um, to survive. (laughs) It's crazy to think about that. There's so much going on. And, and that it's all way more connected because mm-hmm. I think we put organisms in these categories and then we think of them operating within those categories and not um, between those categories and interacting. Yeah. And so especially thinking about bacteria interacting with insects, it's all just amazing how connected everything is. Absolutely. Okay, so... I want to move on to talk about what you've done with some of these antibiotics that create pigment. So first of all, you mentioned it before that there are there's a blue pigment and a red pigment, and um, the blue pigment is 
actinorodin. Is that right? Yes. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that pigment and what you've done with it. Sure. Yeah. So actinorodin um, is pretty incredible because um, it actually is pH responsive. And so um, I should also say to Justin Nodwell, um, his lab has also done a great job of characterizing uh, this compound as well. And it has some like uh, activity, bioactivity against some gram positives as well. But in the terms of um, pigment production, what's really great from Streptomyces silicolor is that uh, this is a pH responsive um, molecule. And so at basic conditions, they're blue. And at acidic conditions, so if you add some like acid uh, media or you just even, you know, add some acid to it, uh, it turns red. And so uh, I was able to, you know, see this beautiful blue pigment kind of uh, be secreted out from Streptomyces seal color. And I just thought it was so pretty. And I was just curious one day of, you know, how would this look like on paper? <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, I just had some plates uh, left over from an experiment on my bench and uh, they had these beautiful drop lists. So I also happened to have a paintbrush, which was related to another experiment. Um, and I just, you know, dipped that in and to the uh, kind of secreted droplet and put that onto paper. And it was just mind blowing because it just really felt like I was painting with the watercolor paint. And it makes sense because this um, compound is water soluble as well. So uh, this, you know, unique pigment, um, I was able to use uh, as like a bio paint. So that was really exciting Mm -hmm. to kind of, you know, serendipitously kind of fall into that. Um, And then as I've read more, I've seen people, you know, use this as like, a biopigment for educational purposes and also, um, you know, uh, fabric, uh, dyeing different fabrics. So it's pretty, it's been a pretty amazing journey. <laughs> That's so neat. And I love that <laughs> there's a term for it. I, I've never heard of that before. Is that, does that ref- biopaint, does that refer to other pigments from other organisms? Oh, you well? know what? That's actually a great question, biopaint. I think I've just, that's a term I've come across reading, you know, works of um, people using uh, bacterial paint as dyes. Um, So, yeah, I think especially, um, as I mentioned earlier, I kind of went into this rabbit hole of like, oh, what if, you know, if I can use this for watercolor, what have other people done? And so I found this really great resource from uh, Louise Charcoutian, um, where uh, they were able to use streptomyces as an educational tool for the classroom, mm-hmm. but um, uh, being able to use pigment from other streptomyces as well as biopaint. So I think maybe that's where I picked up that term. I love that. I think that's a really neat term. Yeah. <laughs> I want it to be used more often now. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, so I will cool. have to double check that dope though, but I'm pretty sure that's where I uh, was yeah. able to pick that up from. Yeah. Yeah. That's really neat. Um, okay. So we didn't even really describe this, but let's kind of step back and 
describe what they look like growing first on a petri dish and um, how the pigment goes out into the auger and stuff. Do you mind just kind of giving everybody a picture of that in their minds? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when they grow on a petri dish, so typically what um, I do is I have like a spore stalk and I streak it out on a plate. And it takes a couple of days for it to grow at 30 degrees. So I take it out and they um, start growing as these small colonies. And what's really cool is um, for my work, uh, I'm really interested in the entire life cycle. So I do time-lapse microscopy. Um, So I'm really able to see from the beginning how these colonies grow. So you have this Mm -hmm. kind of bald looking colony, bald meaning it's not that hairy aerial hyphae looking colony yet because it's early in its life cycle. Um, So if you're looking at a top down view of these colonies, they have this kind of somewhat, you know, um, whitish beige appearance. And then as the colony grows, they, uh, you can see this white fuzzy um, aerial mycelium starting to form. And then you really start uh, seeing kind of this reddish blue pigment. And then um, it also depends on the type of media you're growing it on. So I'm growing on this media that it just loves. It just loves to produce pigment and it loves to sporulate on that media as well. And so the pigment really starts to form and um, you can see it kind of along the time lapse you see in the beginning the surrounding media is kind of like that typical yellowish beige pigment and then towards the end of the time lapse you can see the media media really being turning blue Um, and that's just that natural product really seeping into the media as well and also on the surface I've captured where you can see these droplets being secreted and it's really really amazing. Um, and then, you know, after some time, uh, you know, these droplets do dry up. So there's this, this kind of sweet spot of when I actually can paint from these um, secreted droplets. I'm so glad that you went through that. That was really neat to kind of imagine how they go through their different growth phases and how it appears on the media. So it's almost like we can kind of picture what it's like for you to to grow them in the lab. And a lot of people that work in the lab don't even see that. You go home for the night and you put your plates in the incubator and Mm -hmm. you don't have anything that you can see at first because the cells are so small. But then you come back the next day and then boom, you've got colonies of bacteria there. But um, so getting to imagine that was really neat. And then of course with this, imagining it like with the blue pigment starting to form, I really love mm-hmm. that. That was very, very interesting to think through. Yeah. Um, so do they make any other pigments? Um, and you mentioned that you can change the color. So I think mm-hmm. that's really cool. How much have you worked with the other, like with the red versus the blue? Yeah. So I actually do, um, have a video where I play around with the uh, pH responsive properties um, where I uh, paint with like dilute uh, acetic acid, essentially, uh, you know, vinegar. And so basically um, I have my original painting, which I paint with the blue blue form of actinorodin. Um, and then onto that painting, I was able to just dip a paintbrush in some uh, dilute acetic acid and then kind of go over the painting with 
um, my paintbrush and it was really cool to see it change red. Um, And so um, I think also uh, depending on the strength too, it was pretty faint. So I think maybe if I had a a little bit stronger um, concoction, it would have been a little bit more obvious, Uh, but it was really amazing to kind of play around with that. Um, And also um, just in terms of being able to um, have different colors available just with this one pigment uh, to uh, antibiotic actinorodin, um, it was really great because uh, my uh, fellow lab member, uh, Dylan, and I did uh, were part of this outreach program where we need to do this in a way where people could get involved. And so really painting directly from the plates was not a really um, uh, great way to scale up this activity. So uh, he was awesome and was able to extract a bunch of actinorodin and then uh, test out different, you know, buffers um, and pHs. And so we were able to get kind of this expanded palette of red and blue and then kind of a mix of purplish as well. So um, the more acidic it is, it it was, you know, this really nice red color. And then, yeah, at, at the more basic pH, it was blue. So it was really great to be able to have different choices based on um, this uh, single antibiotic. But also, um, as you um, mentioned earlier, you said that there, there were different uh, pigmented antibiotics as well. And so uh, I had alluded to um, pridiginines. Um, and so that's another uh, pigmented antibiotic that Streptomyces coelacolor produces. And it's really quite amazing. I haven't um, really extracted that or worked with that. Um, mainly because for my paintings, <laughs> just, you know, it's just easier to have that, you know, secreted pigment uh, be available. And so um, that's something that's, can, that can be explored, being able to extract the different um, mm. compounds and use them as pigment. And uh, I think there are, yeah, people out there that are playing with these concepts, especially for like these uh, textile dyes, you know, and um, kind of looking to a more sustainable future and using sustainable dyes as well. Hmm. Okay. So actinorodin and the pictures they form, which I'll put in the show notes so everybody can see, but they form liquid droplets on top of the bacteria. So, and from what you're saying, some of them have pigments, but they don't form the droplets. Is that it? And then, um, is that true? Yeah, so I should maybe rephrase that or clarify that. So some of the antibiotics, um, they're not secreted like actinorodin. Um, And so what's nice about actinorodin is that they are secreted outside of the colony and you can see them as nice little droplets, as you mentioned. And then if they're not secreted, or does, does the colony then have a color to it? Yeah, so the colony has, um, so if it's um, this prodiginine or endesylprodigiosin from Streptomyces color, you can start seeing that the colony itself, um, you know, goes from like a beige color to this nice r- deep red color. So it's um, really beautiful. Well, that's really neat. I know that we, um, when I was helping out and teaching with the freshmen, 
I'm pretty sure somebody came across one that made a really bright pink color. And it was really, (laughs) it was very neat to see that. We haven't even talked about this yet, but obviously you knew how to paint (laughs) before you started this. So how how long have you been painting? Yeah, so I think my interest in art started at a very young age. I will, I would always doodle and um, kind of, uh, I, I did enjoy paints. Uh, my parents definitely got me some paints to uh, work with. And so I did paint starting from an early age. And I think my appreciation for um, wildlife in general really came from, um, and I mentioned this in different um, interviews as well, where my mom's zoology notebook um, that she kept in college was so detailed and beautiful. And I was really inspired by those um, drawings. Uh, and I think that's what inspires a lot of my art now and why I gravitate towards doing a lot of wildlife in my actino art. Um, so yeah, I think just early on, art was really emphasized and it was really just a great way of, you know, being able to express creativity and also just as a stress reliever too. It's really peaceful. Yeah, that's really nice. So what have from all, so you've done all this research, but then also you've done art. Um, What can you kind of tell everybody you've learned from your research and your art that changed the way you think about microbes outside Mm -hmm. of research and just in your daily life? Yeah, so this was something I think about and also just being on your podcast, The Joyful Microbe, I really, (laughs) that like speaks to me (laughs) because I really (laughs) think it is important to reach out to an audience to communicate that, you know, microbes are so beneficial to us and oftentimes we, you know, hear about the bad ones in the news. And so I think it's really important to have this platform where microbes are all around us and they do so many important things. And in terms of my research, um, you know, just being able to understand the complexities and what factors influence, you know, its development and being able to produce these natural products has really, you know, taught me that, you know, these microbes are really essential for just overall life, you know, and I think um, just in terms of um, outside of the lab, um, just from an ecological perspective, as I mentioned earlier, um, streptomyces uh, in particular, you know, because they're able to make all these amazing compounds are super important. Um, And as you mentioned, too, uh, actinos make a lot of different antibiotics. um, And so there's a lot of use for humans as well. And I think just from my personal experience, just on a, you know, um, theme of sustainability, um, kind of being able to use these pigmented compounds and antibiotics as uh, potential sources for natural paint is really Mm. amazing and quite exciting. So uh, Yeah. yeah, I think there's a lot of Uh, potential there um, for growth. And hopefully these paintings that I do can be, you know, um, a continued talking point of how we can, you know, grow and move towards that. Yeah, I think that's really neat to think about. And bacteria are 
they grow relatively fast. And so it seems like this would be a, a good way to produce mm-hmm. things like pigments. And um, I, I'm sure I know I've come across things where, you know, this is actually used um, in a, in a, on a larger scale. But um, so that'll be interesting to look into. And maybe I'll have to interview somebody that does that kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah. I love the idea of, of using these as using bacteria in these kind of ways that you don't initially think about and um, going way beyond even just using the antibiotics. Um, right. But yeah, it's amazing. So um, what at-home microbiology activity can you tell my audience about so they can experience the microbial world in a hands-on way? Yeah, so I will say uh, the paintings that I do, they're definitely in a lab setting, but I think if people really do want to explore uh, this at home, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, there is this incredible paper from Louise Charcoutian. Um, she also has a lab as well. And she, uh, you know, really nicely outlines how to work with streptomyces and do some really cool art with it as well. So you can use the streptomyces themselves um, directly on media to um, create different um, art. And so you can see the bacteria producing pigment, um, but also being able to, in an easy and safe way, extract the pigments too. And so um, the name of the article, do you want that now? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, okay. Uh, So the name of the article, it's in PLOS Biology. It's called In Living Color, Bacterial Pigments as an Untapped Resource in the Classroom and Beyond. Um, So this has been a really great resource. um, And, you know, you can use a lot of, like, homemade um, uh, materials or materials you can just get at the grocery store to really look at this. So I thought this is a really great resource for people who are um, interested and curious to uh, do this at home. That is amazing that people could actually grow these organisms at home and maybe mm-hmm. try out the painting with them. So that'll be really neat. And we'll link to that in the show notes. Well, Vanitha, thank you so much for coming on the Joyful Microbe podcast. Why don't you tell everyone where they can find, follow, and connect with you? Absolutely. Thank you again so much, Justine, for this awesome opportunity. Um, so people can find me on Twitter. Uh, uh, my handle is at Actino Artist. And yeah, I you can definitely look through some of my artwork on there. And um, yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. And I've just loved talking about Streptomyces. They are charming organisms. And one of the things that we forgot to mention is that, and I think I've said it before, but I will always tell people that they make this wonderful smell called Geosmin and that makes them even more charming. They're beautifully colored and they smell good. (laughs) Exactly. I love it. (laughs) So thank you. And um, yeah, this has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Joyful Microbe Podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you'd like to help others who love microbes to find the podcast, then please leave a rating and a review for the show. And tell a friend. 
To learn more about the Joyful Microbe, head on over to joyfulmicrobe.com where you will find the show notes and all the links and resources mentioned. If you love Joyful Microbe and would like to support the show, you can do so by leaving a virtual tip through coffee. The link is in the show notes and on joyfulmicrobe.com at the bottom of the page. Thanks again, microbe friends. Talk to you next time.